would, turn your Bibles to John chapter 16. For those of you all who are watching online tonight, we are grateful that you joined us um, on, on, online. And for those who are in the room, we're grateful that you are here with us. Um, it has been a trying year. Um, but I tell you, it's, it's a, still a joy and a comfort to me to be able to come into the house of the Lord and to celebrate the arrival of King Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Praise God. If you would, John chapter 16, verses 20 through 24 is where we're going to pitch our tent uh, just for a few moments. And I would love, if you have your Bibles, to turn there. Um, for those of you who are at home watching as well, we invite you to turn there as well. John chapter 16, verses 20 through 24. This year, um, in celebration of Advent, Jesus' arrival to the world, we here at City Light have been dealing with some of the key themes that, that actually comprise, that are comprised of Advent. Uh, some of those themes include uh, peace, and, and Jesus' arrival means true peace came to the world along with him. Um, we also dealt with the uh, theme of hope. Jesus' arrival meant that true hope came to the world with him. Uh, we dealt with the theme on last Sunday, which Corey eloquently uh, preached and powerfully preached to us about, about love and Jesus' arrival means that true love has come to the world with him. And tonight on this very special evening, I would like to ponder just for a moment how Jesus' arrival on earth is also the arrival of true, true and abiding joy. In this text, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his impending death and temporary departure from them. And he makes this very interesting declaration. While you see me, you'll have joy. But when you do not see me, you will not have joy is basically what he's saying. When, when you do not see me, you will weep and lament and there will be sorrow. And the question is, why does Jesus say this? While you see me, you'll have joy, but when you do not see me, you will have sorrow and weeping and lament. And it's, and it's quite simple why he says this. He says this because the arrival of Jesus is the arrival of joy. Everyone that comes in contact with Jesus when we read throughout Scripture comes in contact with joy. From the very beginning of his arrival, when, when, uh, when the shepherds are in the field in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, it talks about the shepherds being in the field and the angel of the Lord appears to them and the glory of the Lord is shown around them and they were filled with great fear and the angel said to them, fear not for behold I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. The angel appeared to these men whose possessions were limited and insignificant, whose reputation was of, uh, was of no consequence, whose living conditions were meager, and he said, I bring you a message that is filled with great joy. And what was this message? The message did not include a, a, a encouragement that their financial situation would change and that it would increase. It did not include a promise that they would gain more prominence and power in the world than they ever dreamed. It did not include a promise that their living conditions would improve and become shockingly different from what they were accustomed to. What was the message? For unto you, verse 11 of chapter 2, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. A Savior has been born. 
The only one who can save us from the devil, from death, and from an eternal hell has come down to earth. The one who is called Christ the Lord has arrived. The one who they prophesied would be called God with us is now with us. What was the source of their joy? God is here. And what is the source of our joy? God has come. We see it again in Matthew chapter 2. The arrival of Jesus is the arrival of joy. A group of wise men from the east saw a star appear, uh, appear in the heavens, and it was leading them to the birthplace of this same Savior. And they journeyed and made their way into Bethlehem. And after they made a pit stop at the place, at the palace rather, of a tyrannical king by the name of Herod, whose evil intentions they were yet to be made aware of, Scripture tells us that they again spotted the star that was leading them to the Savior. And picking up in Matthew chapter 2, verse 9 through 10, it says, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. When did they rejoice at the sight of the star? Or why, rather, did they rejoice at the sight of of the star, because the star was leading them to the Savior, Emmanuel, God with us. What is the source of the wise men's joy? The same source of the shepherd's joy. God is here. And what is the source of our joy? God has come. We see it in the interaction of two expecting mothers, Mary, mother of Jesus to Christ, and Elizabeth, mother of John the Baptist. In Luke chapter 1, verse 39 through 44, they're having a, uh, a meeting, so to speak. And in, and in that meeting, in verse 40, it says, Mary entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. In verse 41 of Luke chapter 1 says, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the, ba the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she just exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Leaped for joy. What was the source of this unborn child's joy? The arrival of the unborn Christ. Mary, Elizabeth, and the unborn John all had joy because God was arriving and coming into the world. What is the source of their joy? God has come. And what is the source of our joy? Or what is the source of their joy? God is here. And what is the source of our joy? God has come into the world. The arrival of Jesus is the arrival of joy. And so it then makes sense to us that Jesus says what he says in John chapter 16, verses 19, or verse 19. He says that in a little while, while you will not see me, you will be sorrowful. If the arrival of Jesus is the arrival of joy, then it only makes sense that his death would bring sorrow. John chapter 20, or John chapter 16, verse 20, it says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. Truly, truly means this is for certain. 
It's as if Jesus is saying, I can guarantee you this. When I die, your lives will be met with deep and abiding sorrow. Sorrow that is so deep and so traumatic that it will lead to an outward expression of weeping and an outward expression of mourning. This is what happens when death shows up on our doorstep. Some of you in this room, even on this, on this evening, and some of you probably watching online, you, you, you felt that kind of sorrow in your life because you have losses that you've experienced. Some of us have lost family members and others have lost dear friends and we felt like we lost them too soon. And that sentiment has only risen in the last couple of years as we've suffered through this pandemic together and we've lost countless friends and countless family members. But try to imagine that one of those beloved family members or one of those beloved friends that you lost was in fact the savior of the world in which you had placed all of your hopes in all of your dreams in which you had a, which in which you had rested your eternal destiny in the hands of the sorrow and the weeping and the mourning that would be found in the loss of that one would be magnified because of all that he meant but not only will they experience deep and abiding sorrow Jesus promises them but they will experience it while the world rejoices. John chapter 16, verse 20, again, truly, truly, certainly, I guarantee you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Again, here Jesus is saying, I guarantee you that you will be exceedingly sorrowful, and I also guarantee you that the world will rejoice in the midst of your sorrow. Why rejoice at the death of a Savior? At least two reasons. There could be more. But one reason is because we don't believe that Savior to actually be the Savior. And so his death brings somewhat glee. But also, we might rejoice at the death of a Savior because we believe that we are sufficient to save ourselves. And we are in, in need, or, or we are in no need of saving. For too many of us, Jesus gets in the way of us being our own Savior. So a life without Christ is a life with joy, even if that joy is only short-lived. You see, the death of God for many means that we can create a God of our own making. So should God die, we would rejoice at his death. Some may be listening in or watching on tonight. You may be watching and you may consider that your life is much better with Jesus not in it. Feel like it's a life that's free to pursue whatever I desire, whenever I desire it. Some of you in the room may be thinking to yourself that a life without Jesus would be so much easier because it would be free of restraint and free of rules and obstructions and everything that's getting in the way of me having fun with my life. Some of you in this room or some that are watching may be saying if the, if the Christmas child is truly dead, 
then that means I can live Christmas day and every day after it exactly the way that I want to live it. And then, then I'll have true joy. Beloved, that belief is as deceptive as the cold that is found in a Christmas morning stocking for the children that have been bad with Santa Claus. That doesn't happen for real. Santa Claus doesn't leave cold. Santa Claus, I'll let y'all talk to your kids about that. That delusion may feel real to you right now, but it will be short-lived because one day, and it could be today, and it could be tomorrow, or it could be two weeks from now, 20 years from now, we will all stand face-to-face with our maker. We will all one day face the creator of all things, and when we stand before him, our resume of imperfection won't be sufficient to gain entry into his kingdom. Matthew chapter 16 tells us, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The one who seeks to save his own life will lose his eternal life. This is as certain as the sorrow the disciples felt at Jesus' death. For those who sought and seek To save themselves, Jesus' momentary death brings a momentary joy. However, for those who sought and seek a Savior in Jesus, Jesus' momentary death on the cross brought a momentary sorrow. Key word being momentary, which is why Jesus turns the tide of sorrow in verse 20 with seven words. These seven words. Again, let's start. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 20, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful. And then the tide turns here. But your sorrow will turn into joy. Again, truly, truly, just as certain as the sorrow came at my death and just as certain as the sorrow came when you thought that I had departed you, the joy will come at my return. The joy will come at my resurrection. To highlight this point, Jesus points to the often used metaphor of childbirth. He says, basically, it will come as, it will come like a mother who is expecting a child. Now, it will come as no surprise to anyone in this room or watching on tonight, but I've never actually had a child, but I've watched a few more. And I can tell you from my observation that it appears to be that there are few things in the world more painful and few things in the world more excruciating than childbirth. And even more so, there are fewer things in the world that turn so abruptly from excruciating pain to indescribable joy. The pain is excruciating in the beginning, and then something happens. And that something that happens is actually greater than the pain. And that joy that comes from the arrival of the child overwhelms the mother and overwhelms the pain. And Jesus follows the metaphor with verse 22. He says, so also you have sorrow now as I prepare to leave you and as I prepare to give myself on a cross. But I will see you again when I rise from the grave, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. 
Jesus is saying something profound here to the disciples. I guarantee you, he's saying, that at my death, you are going to experience undeniable and indescribable pain. But I also guarantee that at my resurrection, you are going to experience a heart-level joy that will overwhelm any other suffering that you've ever experienced or that you ever will experience. And that joy will never be taken away from you. At the, arrival of the, at, the, at the arrival of the child, does the mother's pain go away? No. The mother's pain is still prevalent, it's still present, but the joy has overwhelmed it. So when Jesus rises from the grave, does he mean that there will be no more, no more painful episodes in the experience of the Christian? No. But he means that now at his sight will be a joy that overwhelms the suffering. Why does, why or how can a joy be produced that overwhelms the suffering? Because I will be with you and I will be in you and my good news that is filled with great joy will be finally realized. This joy will always be with you because I will be with you. We see this all throughout the New Testament. Matthew chapter 28, when the women first received the word from the angel that Jesus resurrects from the grave, verse 8 says, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Great joy filled them. Luke chapter 24, when the other disciples came in contact with the risen Savior, Jesus declares, uh, or Luke declares, that they marvel in disbelief with joy. And the last words we hear in the Gospel of Luke are as follows. It says, while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And this joy continues with the arrival of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church and the, in the book of Acts. When the word went forth and people got saved, the Bible says that they rejoiced. When the Gentiles heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it says that they rejoiced at the reception of salvation. And even when they faced persecution, when the disciples and the followers of Jesus faced persecution and they were pushed out of cities, the Bible said they would be rejected and they would leave with joy. Acts 5 says that even after being beaten for preaching Christ, they left the presence of the council that had inflicted the punishment upon them, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. So did the suffering hurt? Was it painful? Absolutely. But the joy of knowing Christ and the joy of being with Christ and being in Christ surpassed the pain. In 2 Corinthians, Paul said that even in the midst of sorrow due to suffering and due to pain and due to grief and due to loss, they still found room. He and the others that walked with him still found room and cause to rejoice because they still had Jesus. He describes this experience as sorrowful yet rejoicing, experiencing pain yet filled with joy. How is this possible? Because the joy that we experience in Christ exceeds the sorrow that comes with, from our life and from the circumstances within it. The joy of this world can't exist in sorrow because everything else we attach our joy to 
has the ability to be lost. Does that make sense? And so when we attach our joy to the finances and the finances go, then we lose our joy. And when we attach our joy to relationships and the relationships break down, then we lose our joy. And so the joy of this world can't exist in the midst of sorrow because sorrow is attached to those things that we can lose. But when we attach our joy to Jesus, it will always be present because Jesus will always be present. We can't lose a joy that's wrapped in Jesus because we can't lose Jesus. The Christian who has their eyes fixed on Jesus can say, even if I have no money, I have Christ. Even if I'm without good health, I'm not without him. Even if I hold no position of prestige, he still has a hold on me. This is where true joy abides. Paul declares in Romans chapter 14 that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy. He later tells us in Galatians chapter 5 that when you begin to think about the outworkings of having a true relationship with Jesus Christ and experiencing true relationship with Jesus Christ and having the spirit of Christ living richly on the inside of you, one of the outworkings of that is joy. In other words, to be a part of the family of God is to be indwelled with a deep, abiding, and sustained joy. Why? because we've been indwelled by him. This is what happens when we meet the resurrected Savior. We are endowed with indescribable, inexpressible, and inextinguishable joy. Those who come in contact with Jesus come in contact with this joy. So how do we walk in it? In closing, how do we walk in it? Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, Scripture says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. We walk in this joy by rightly appraising the value of Jesus. The man who saw the treasure and rightly appraised that what he had spotted was in fact treasure, sells everything else and says nothing else matters but that treasure. And he sells it, not sorrowfully, but he sells it in his joy. He's willing to forsake everything else in his joy because he has rightly appraised the treasure in the field. The enemies of your soul, that being the flesh, the world, and the devil, will work endlessly to blind you of the worth of knowing Jesus. And in so doing, they will rob you of your opportunities to have joy in Jesus. You see, by obstructing your view of Jesus, they obstruct your joy in Jesus. The world will try to take your eyes off of the glad tidings of great joy the good news of great joy by putting your attention and fixing your attention on everything else. Even right now, as we reflect on Christmas, right, as we reflect on the arrival of a Savior, what is, what is our hearts being inundated with? 
What is our mind and our thoughts being flooded with? Everything else but Jesus. We're constantly being bombarded with distractions and, 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 and focus grabbers. And we're constantly being bombarded with thoughts of gifts and thoughts of food and thoughts of cooking and thoughts of clothing and thoughts of, and thoughts of hospitality and all of these other thoughts, even on the one day that our hearts are supposed to be settled and fixed on the arrival of Jesus. And then in the midst of Christmas, we ask ourselves, why does it not feel like I have joy? The devil, the world, and the flesh will work endlessly to rob you of joy by robbing you of the value of Jesus. So how do you get joy? You get joy by thinking on Jesus' love for us. You get joy by thinking on the fact that he loved us so much that he, that he came down from heaven and that he, that he took on the form of a servant and that he walked obediently all the way into the point of death. And he suffered greatly on our behalf. We get joy by thinking on Jesus' mercy toward us and the fact that we were yet sinners, but Christ extended mercy and grace towards us and died for us in the midst of our sin. We get joy by thinking on the grace of Jesus towards us. The unmerited favor that we've been given, we did not deserve his righteousness, and yet he has showered us with righteousness. We get joy by thinking on Jesus' sacrifice, that on the cross he laid it all on the line in order that you and I might be set free from darkness and brought into the light. We get joy by thinking on Jesus' joy. Scripture says that looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, Jesus saw in his sacrifice, he looked ahead to joy. What kind of joy? The joy of having you as his own. The joy of having a people Declare him Lord and Savior. The joy of having a people exalt him and worship him on a day like today. He looked ahead and looked past the sacrifice. And because of the joy that was set before him, he suffered and died and rose in order that we too might experience that joy. For this season, for this Advent season, Fix your hearts and your attention on Jesus. Remember what Christ has done. And let those thoughts fuel the joy that you have in him. Amen. Amen. Lord Jesus, as we prepare now to...